Security can be a lonely, lonely business. But once in a while, two players find each other and they make it happen. Here at Pwned, we want to help them to understand, is it right or is it just wrong? Welcome to Right Swipes. All right, Jack, it's been a little while since we've done some swiping. Mm. How do you you feel about a little right swipes? I feel perfectly (laughs) swipe-tastic. That sounds swipe-licious to me. (laughs) Hey, you know what? And, you know, there haven't been any really massive deals that are fun to talk about. But uh, in doing a little reading around, while the industry is getting pummeled and those organizations, unfortunate enough not to have been acquired recently, Mm -hmm. are having some struggles, we've actually seen uh, a bunch of reporting on the fact that the M&A has been holding up uh, in 2022. And uh, I'm looking specifically at an article in Crunchbase. So I think it's pretty interesting. Chris Matinko writes about the fact that even though we may not be as high as last year, which is like the highest in history by a factor of three or some nonsense, um, it looks like we're pretty much on track to be at a triple digit uh, number of meaningful M&A activities this year in cyber. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. A lot of swiping. It is interesting to me to think that, you know, we've got talks of recession looming, but, you know, this cyber deal-making engine doesn't seem to really be slowing down that much. I mean, from what I can tell roughly, it looks like the total dollar amount invested seems to be a little bit smaller, but the total count of opportunities seems to be just as high as ever. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's true, right? I was just looking at this article in Crunchbase, and they just basically call it three of these. Veracode, which was bought for, I think, what, the fourth time? Two and a half billion in May. AMD acquired Pensando for one point nine billion, and Sentinel One, as everybody knows, the endpoint company growing, bought a TiVo for six hundred and sixteen million. So those are some pretty big numbers at a time. You know, March, April, May. You know, things were starting already to slow down pretty good. So they must have some insight into the fact that those companies are going to help them. You know, reach more healthy financial conclusions anyway. Mm. Yeah, so those are big deals. Those are pretty established companies. What do you think all this means for smaller companies, you know, who might not be as established as some of the ones like you've talked about? Well, you know, you think about it, if you think about the smaller companies and you think about some of the problems, even the larger companies who are having difficulties hitting their projections and we're seeing the layoffs from, my guess is that the companies that are getting acquired have sufficient market presence or market momentum so that they're less risky from a top line revenue uh, sort of perspective. And it's also quite possible, frankly, that the valuation of the companies who are doing the acquisitions are still high enough that the money is relatively free for them, right? If the valuations continue to be much higher than you would ordinarily get off a typical, you know, B ratio kind of measure, it could be that these companies are still remarkably inexpensive considering the price of the capital if the capital is an overinflated stock value. Right. I think it may not reflect the same way for smaller companies, right? Because they're not going to be contributing in the same way to the top line in a meaningful sense, right? So they're not going to be able to move the needle necessarily without a substantial investment, both in selling and probably integrating the technology so you can get it out to all the customers of these larger companies. And so it could be that we'll see less of that tuck-in acquisition activity over the course of this period of time as people are trying to figure out, you know, uh, what's the exposure. Although, again, the risk will be lower because the acquisition price will be lower. Yeah. Taking that approach, I still see a lot of value for acquiring companies, right? If you're saying if there's been an economic downturn and you need to show revenue growth and 
you know, perhaps some level of profitability and you're able to find one of these, you know, good companies still out there, like it, regardless of where we are from an economic standpoint, it still, still could be a good, good move from a financial standpoint. There's one quote in here that actually caught my eye. <laughs> maybe think that maybe you were reading it when you were talking, but um, the quote is um, from Alberto Yipes. Is a co-founder and managing director at Forge Point Capital. The quote reads, M&A premiums are not coming down yet because the companies getting bought right now are some of the best, which I think would kind of like angle towards like what you were saying is saying the acquisitions that we see happening or some of like the big investments happening are going into like some of the larger established companies that could stand on their own if, if they had to. So it makes it a safer investment for folks. Follow in that section of the article you're talking about. I think an interesting company makes is he expects to see the prices fall when the PE firms and private equity starts to get into the marketplace as opposed to institutional, you know, companies, you know, doing the purchases as part of MA activity. I wonder why that is. Maybe because the numbers are wrong, right? Because PE teams tend to be relatively numbers oriented. These multiples are talking about, so like showing multiples around 20 times AR for good startups. If you have PEs starting to pay that rate, especially for like a growth PE firm, like you start to F up their ratios, right? So it's a lot different for a strategic to make that purchase because if you're a strategic making that acquisition, you get similarly like a really great company. You have, you know, an excellent staff that you're acquiring. You're also acquiring a customer list. You're acquiring revenue done correctly. You could position in a way that it's ultra profitable. Then you also get the 1041 step up depreciation for an LLC. So then you can turn around and you can capitalize the asset and effectively write it off for tax benefit. So from a strategic standpoint, like I think it makes a lot of sense, but that is not always true for like a private equity company of saying, if they're having to compete with the strategics of the world, like private equity is going to lose like that multiple game, because if they start paying up to compete, like all of a sudden it changes the fiscal dynamics for their limited partners. And it doesn't make a lot of fiscal sense for the equity companies to go in and compete at those multiples. It's fun, right? Because in the episode about Sequoia and the work they did on that Adapt and Endure deck, they said that, you know, for them and for other investors, that that top line revenue is no longer going to be the measurement uberale for figuring out how valuable companies are. Uh, and yet Ipez, when he's talking about the M&A activity, is saying that he still expects to see 20x ARR for good startups. There's a relatively fundamental disconnect, right, between Forgepoint Capital, which is where this fellow's from, and between the team at Sequoia. And Sequoia's like, hey, need a more fundamental analysis of path to profitability, what have you. And Forgepoint is still saying top line ARR. Right? That's where the multiples are going to be coming from. And if you believe what, and it's not just Sequoia, but others are saying in a tighter financial marketplace where cash is not as easily available, you're going to see more of a focus on the fundamentals. So maybe they'll want to be selling some of their companies you know, or get investments from Forgepoint. Because if they believe that there's an overvaluation based on top line revenue with bad fundamental financials underneath, it strikes me that you know, different folks, different strokes. Yeah, I think that like for me, the storyline like still holds true because if you're a strategic making that acquisition, like you're kind of doing it for like the customer list and like the gross revenue, right? So say you have investors that and you're reporting out to the street, maybe you're publicly traded, like to show that you have that revenue growth, it counts to them. But also to like flip it around is like if you're paying more, that's more you're also going to be able to write off 
on your taxes as well. So it could be like a tax reduction strategy. Whereas I think for like private equity companies, you know that dollars are limited in nature and you're not just going to be able to pour dollars into the company in order to drive top line growth. So as a result, like the companies you invest in almost need to be somewhat sustainable on their own and be profitable because like in the world of making capital calls, in like in investor pools, like if LPs are down on their luck and you know they can't fulfill the call, like obviously they're in violation of like their contract that they have stood up. But like if you don't have the money, like you don't have the money, like what else are you gonna do? And so to that extent, I would imagine, I'm totally speculating that the equity companies as I know them are gonna have to be like conservative here over the next couple of years, at least till we kind of see the other side of what recession looks like. So I think this has been very instructive helping folks to understand the varying ways in which people consider these models for acquisition. But wait a minute, wait a minute. This is right swipes. We're here to talk about love matches and yeah. to talk a little bit about, you know, it was 2 a.m. Did they make the right call before the lights came up? So I'm just going to take that tack for a little bit. You know, for each of us, let's talk about it from the M&A perspective, right? If you are a large company who has some amount of success and you're in the bar and frankly, you've got some choices, right? But it's kind of like a falling knife, right? You know that some of these people are going to go home to boil bunnies. Some of these people are going to be excellent selections. How do you come to the choice about which of these falling knives you intend to grasp if you expect there to be a period of fiscal austerity like we're seeing? From a love match perspective, Justin, do you run from the bar because there may be a localized infection spreading? Or you take a shot. <laughs> if it's me, I'm at this point, I'm jogging away from the bar <laughs> myself. <laughs> at this point, I think it's uh, live to fight another day. And, um, you know, who knows? Like, because you say no now might means you have a chance to say yes later. And perhaps there's a situation where, like, you say no now. Don't go to the hotel room. And, um that means there's going to be assets left over at a discount in the morning. And maybe you can pick up multiple for the price of one. <laughs> oh, multi-swiped. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm jogging right along there beside you in my velour-clad uh, tuxedo. Yeah, I'm heading for the hills. And my reasoning is this, right? I think it's interesting that the companies themselves are doing the acquisitions clearly have a growth strategy and they've probably made some commitments about top line revenue growth that they're trying to hit through some of these acquisitions. I kind of get it, right? But they're actually buying companies for whom their own growth and revenue is going to be predicated on the success of largely technology businesses and businesses which rely on technology over the coming 12 to 24 months. When we read through Sequoia's excellent recommendations and you read the press in general, it ain't just high tech that's going to be experiencing a downturn. Inflation, interest rates, customer sentiment, foreign strife, etc., is driving everybody down. And so it's not even just a question of whether the organization's fundamentals today and their sales revenues today are decent. So you see them at the bar and they're looking okay. You got to realize that when the lights come up, that probably next month, next year, you know, 18 months from now, ain't going to age so well. Right. Because a lot of the accessories they're relying on to maintain what made them attractive at 2 a.m., they're not going to be necessarily in the same condition as they were when you bought them because the entire economy is likely experiencing some form of downturn. So for me, I think, yeah, I think that it's going to be too hard to know what it's going to look like in the morning. 
and uh, I, I'm in no position to chew off an arm. So I'm thinking that I'd probably run for the hills as well and, and live to fight another day. I think it's exactly the right way to frame it. Yeah. So I think we're saying that it's hard to say that there is a right swipe that's going to happen in this period of economic uncertainty, unless it's something just blatant and wonderful and someone did wait long enough for the date of a lifetime to walk through the door and just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I agree. Jake, let me ask you this, just kind of like flipping this around here as we kind of look towards the end of this episode. So the numbers we're looking at were for Q2. Um, so we look forward to Q3. What what would you expect to see? You know what I'm going to expect to see? I'm going to call it out. So it looks like there were 50 deals announced so far this year in 2022. And, you know, roughly, yeah, just say 50. So figure 24 years. So I'm going to say there will be less than 17 in Q3. Less than 17 deals. Yes. And I'm going to say the year as a whole will come in under 90, hmm. which would be make it roughly half of what last year's was. 2021 saw 130 deals. So it won't be less than half. It would be about two thirds of what we saw last year. What do you think is going to happen? It's still pretty remarkable. I actually agree with your forecasts, but it's like it's remarkable in like a time of like fiscal uncertainty that you still have demand in the space, even at a seemingly reduced capacity, especially when you look at like other industries that have been completely decimated, like down to nothing. And um, you have cyber still kind of like buoying up, you know, as seemingly a, a good place to park dollars, which tells me that when we get to the other side of the economic uncertainty of everything, I kind of see like a trampoline effect happening, you know, and then at that point, it's gonna be lights out. When you've got a problem that everybody understands, right? You can, you can talk to anybody. I'm sure you have the same occurrence I have when somebody goes, oh, you work in cyber? Blah. And they say something about cyber, right? Because everybody understands that it's a problem, right? Whether they understand it at a personal or a corporate level, they understand it's a problem. I'm going to combine that omnipresent understanding of need with the fact that nobody understands jack about what these companies actually do. So I've got a well-known need, total addressable market, infinite, right? Because you, you don't know what it costs to fix a problem you don't understand very well. You just know it's a big problem. And I think that's why the cyber market continues on and on and on. I think if people were allowed to market pharmaceuticals without proving that they're beneficial to curing illnesses, you would see a similar level of popularity of every version of snake oil that's available, right? If you were allowed to say, this drug instantaneously, you know, helps you lose your gray hair, Jack, and it'll all be beautiful color again. Oh, really? Okay, then there we go. Or pick the most horrible <laughs> disease you can name, or physical condition, or this will make you more attractive. And if they were allowed to do it, because people don't understand what the underlying causes of my gray hair are, right? Including you, meaning your cause, <laughs> not that you don't understand it. Um, but the, if they don't understand the underlying causes and the problem, then they're going to believe that anything can be a solution. And so everybody has the problem. They don't understand what it is. They don't understand the solution. These companies are going to continue to blossom until the market becomes more informed or until some companies out there do a better job of being transparent about how they attempt to reduce the risk. I want you to know that Jack, I'm still, I'm still earning mine here. I got, I got, I got a few, a few I'm working on. That's actually like a super interesting thought. Cyber is akin to a completely unregulated pharmaceutical industry. Right on. Where everybody understands the disease, nobody understands the cure. And they're not forced to explain why the cure is a cure. Holy crap. Can you imagine if stuff was completely reversed? Where like cyber is completely regulated and pharmaceuticals was just completely the wild west. Where <laughs> people pop Yikes. up pills. I guess whatever situation, and I'll take this one versus that one. That one sounds pretty bad. Yeah. 
All right, man, this has been good. Any words of wisdom imparting? Somebody go out there, grow up a nice cybersecurity company and have it acquired so we can do a right swipes that we're super happy about. Like some of the ones we've had in the past have been awesome and energizing. And now, you know, looking at 2021, McAfee had two of the biggest ones. It doesn't feel like the pool in Vegas. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's end on the pool in Vegas. If you're looking for honest cybersecurity help, you know how to find us, pwned.newharborsecurity.com. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode.